0: Hey, welcome to Every Night's a School Night, the radio podcast since 2013 now. This is episode 73, and this will be a a spiral Nerf football straight to your groin, so I hope you're wearing a cup. No, I don't want to, I'm not throwing any spirals at anybody's groins tonight. Not tonight. Other nights may be. It's always with a Nerf football, though. It's never with a pigskin it's never with a leathery painful football painful foot is that a painful football um you know last night i was talking about how you know we all have different roles and that can be hard for other people to understand especially when you have a sense for if not what your role is then for what it isn't because sometimes we do have to define our lives by just knowing that something isn't for us. And that's what helps us kind of shape what is for us. And I think it's important to find out what is for you, you know. I don't think you want to just do nothing. You, you can say, oh, uh, you know, that's not my role. But if you don't ever find out what your role is, what are you doing? And I do feel that my role is to support certain people who are making sense of the world, situations and events, small and large, and to support their candidness, honesty, and to let them know that they are, in fact, making sense, some kind of sense, you know, whatever sense they can find. And if they can find it, we can find it. If someone else can find some kind of sense in this world, we can learn from that. And we're not all going to make sense in the same way, and sometimes it will be conflicting. But we have to acknowledge that maybe we are looking at the same object from different points of view. And, uh, you know, there really isn't one way to make sense, though, which is why making sense is so difficult. And it's why I can't, in good faith, give direct support to somebody who comes from a place of intense dogma. And I feel that I always run the risk of becoming that way myself by even expressing myself at all. Because if you express yourself with any confidence, there's always the risk of, one, coming across dogmatic, and two, giving the impression that you are more dogmatic than you are. And that might be something you're seeing in other people, you know, too. You might be misinterpreting their confidence as some sort of dogma. But, uh, you know, I like people, and the people I'm drawn to are figuring it out. They are offering impromptu wisdom, and it's the way that impromptu wisdom intersects and diverges that makes something that I would dare call cohesion. And that's something that's it's, it's a hard... Road to to go down and it, and it's an even harder place to get to where you start to realize that cohesion includes ideas coming together and diverging and moving apart from one another. And that can still be cohesive. There is still a, a relationship to those uh, between those things, and that relationship does form something larger. and I, I would call it cohesive at least as cohesive as we can get in a, in a natural world that produces carnivores, yet in the absence of carnivores we have rot and waste. You know, you think about how nasty and vicious being a carnivore is. That you devour other creatures. You you process their their meat and you just you get through you know, you you tear through their gore. <laughs> you know? And and that's how you survive, that's how you build muscle, that's how you get by. And you know, we are very detached from that. You know, being humans, we don't really see a lot of the gore. You know, we even buy things pre cooked. I mean, most of the things I I barely ever even like cook my own meat in the oven. You know, I buy a lot of like pre cooked meat even. So I don't even really ever see the gore. But you think about the natural world where it's gory. You know, it's lions tearing apart zebras. And it's this nature that produces carnivores, which seems cruel. It seems vicious. It is. And it's nasty, too. I mean, I'm very squeamish. I can handle psychological darkness, but I've never been able to handle gore and blood and guts very well. And uh, so, you know, there's no denying that you know, just being a creature who eats things, and I mean, even even a, what uh, whatever you call it, a omnivore or a, you know, vegetarian, whatever that's called in the, the animal world, I don't think you call animals vegetarians, but animals who eat plants, like, even that's pretty vicious, even though we don't see it as gory, because we don't relate to it. You know, we don't, you know, we relate to the deaths of even zebras and these other animals. Anything that bleeds red blood and we see guts and bones, we relate to that, even if it's a different creature. But we don't relate to the destruction of a plant, even though that too is being eaten by something and broken down. So, n- whether it's carnivorous or not, there's still just this viciousness to survival, to getting by, to eating to sustenance, but in the absence of that viciousness, we have rot and waste, which seems like more of a crime, you know, it seems like more of a crime for something to die and just wither away, and for it to not be put to use, sustaining another creature, so on one hand we have this nasty, vicious, carnivorous side of nature, but then we have this other side where something just rots away and isn't used to sustain life at all, and maybe you could say that it does go into the earth and sustain the earth in some way, you know, that does work that way, but it's it's kind of a, you know, a no-win, but also a no-lose. It's a no-win and also a no-lose. But it's also the same nature, the same nature that produces this carnivore, this carnivorous, just vicious, gory thing also produces, you know, rot and waste in the absence of these carnivores. But it's the sa- It's the very same nature that also produces growth, even in its cracks. You know, even... You'll see things grow out of sidewalks. Even when nature is obscured by our liquid rock that forms our cities when it dries, you know, things still grow through that. Roots still cause sidewalks to become uneven. And so life really just needs the slightest amount of nutrients and just a glimpse of light to have just some chance it it just in life needs such little encouragement is the crazy thing to grow you know that just blows my mind and that's what it's why people take pictures of like a flower sticking out of a sidewalk as much as that's a cliche it's also just an incredible phenomenon to to notice that, to be like that, that flower or even that weed, that weed that's growing out of the sidewalk. Just the fact that that thing needed such little encouragement. It needed so little, it demanded so little in terms of nutrients and it needed just this glimpse of light to grow. And it's just, it blows my mind. And long story short, I've just never felt so connected to everyone. Even though people are at each other's throats. I've never felt so in harmony with everyone, even if I feel like I can't express that to most people. Even if I feel like most people aren't actually receptive to that at all. I still feel connected to them, even though I can't communicate it. And that's a really strange feeling. It's, It's strange to feel so connected... But to have this barrier that's not of my making, and and, you know, maybe I do make my own barriers, you know, I don't think I make it easy for people necessarily to connect with me, but it's, it's, I, I just, I wouldn't have expected that with everything going on, I would feel so connected to everybody. And like I was saying at the start of the episode, you know, it's, I do feel that my role is to support certain people who are trying to make sense of the world, you know, maybe not just making sense, but trying, people who are trying in earnest, and even the people who I feel aren't doing that, people who do have some sort of agenda or dogma behind what they're doing, and I don't know whether I i should truly be opposed to dogma, you know, I just, I guess I'm just using that as just to, a way to explain people who I feel like have some sort of ulterior motive, even when it's not even their own ulterior motive. And that's a weird thing to kind of try to wrap your brain around when someone has an ulterior motive behind what they're saying or doing, but it's not even their own ulterior motive. <laughs> you know, that's a hard one. Uh, but even those people, I feel connected to them. I just I, it, it seems almost impossible to really communicate right now. And I hope there comes a time when we can, and maybe just the sheer fact that we are alive at the same time is a form of communication. And in some cases, these are people who I know or have known throughout my life or I think about. Even, the, even just the fact that you think about somebody who you once knew, even if you're no longer connected to them in any way, even just thinking about someone feels like a form of communication. And I don't think any of this is grandiose. It's not even, it's not grand, you know, I don't think there's anything that crazy or large about it. It seemed, to me, it seems really simple and humble. And I'm not saying I'm humble, but just the whole process, it just feels like it's really just, uh, I don't know, Is it? it's from the bottom of my heart, which might not be the soles of my feet, but it's still not the top of my head, if, if that makes any sense. I feel like everything I'm I'm feeling right now is coming from the bottom of my heart, and that might not be the, you know, it's not where my feet touch the ground, but it's also not, you know, the top of my head. That's the only way I could explain it, and that probably makes no sense to anybody at all. Um, but you can always ask why. You know, as much as I am on this, kind of perpetual kick on this show about, you know, describe, don't explain. And eventually, if we get enough different descriptions, which is what I mean when I say people who are trying to make sense, people who are trying to describe their experience. To me, that's what tr- that's what trying to make sense is. And I think if you're trying to make sense, you are making some kind of sense. So it's not even really about trying or succeeding, or anything like that. I think that trying to make sense is making sense as long as you're just describing and not trying to explain. And as much as I get on that kick, and I continually hammer that home on this show, to not just describe your own experience and your own sensations, but to highlight other people's descriptions and You know, ulterior motives and agendas, to me, those are explanations, and that's a reason to push those away or at least keep them at bay. It's not that you shouldn't pay attention to them because I think they're part of the thing. Those might be where things diverge. As I was saying, you know, the cohesion of existence, you know, it includes things that intersect as well as go apart, that diverge. And I think maybe those ulterior motives and agendas that's where things diverge from me. Those are the things that I'm not as open to for whatever reason. And because to me, those are attempts to explain something. And, you know, but as much as 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 I'm anti-explanation, you know, as silly as that sounds, as much as I kind of push that idea of describing rather than explaining, I'm still not opposed to asking why. Even though I don't want to be told why necessarily, because there's some arrogance to that. And I don't, I don't believe people when they try to tell me the why behind things. That doesn't mean you can't ask why. And uh, you can always ask why as long as you don't expect an answer. But I do feel that when you ask why, you might get a little closer to something. And if you humble yourself when you say it, when you ask why... I think you will get closer to something. Maybe a clearer description rather than an explanation. But I do think when you ask why, it can't be... Why? Why? It shouldn't be a... Even though it's a question, it shouldn't really be a questioning tone. I think you have to humble yourself if you're going to ask why. And how do you phrase that if you're going to humble yourself when you ask why? Well, you could put the word "o" oh in front of it and say, "Oh, why?" Oh, why?
1: Why, why?
2: around here. But you're responsible. You're a free agent. You'd better be. <laughs> and so when you are told from childhood that you are expected and commanded to behave in a way that will be acceptable only if you do it voluntarily, you remain permanently mixed up. <laughs> that, if anything, is permanent brain damage.
3: <laughs> I <laughs>
0: First, that was the jades, like the mineral or jewel, the jades. With oh why, good way to ask a question. Oh why? And that was followed by Sylvia Laramore and the Miller sisters with my conscience, and I've played that one on here before. It's very haunting. I think talking about your conscience, you know, if it's not. I don't know, when you hear your conscience, it it generally has this, it's sort of a warning. It's got, I don't want to say it has a negative connotation, but you don't really think about your conscience when you have a good conscience. So you're usually aware of your conscience when your conscience is bad. And what is your conscience? I don't really know, but I would say it's something similar to your intuition. I don't think it's just your moral programming. I don't think it's just the ethics that you are taught. I think that it is something that is intuitive and natural. And I don't know that there's really any separation between your conscience and your intuition. I think they're different forms of the same thing, maybe, would be a way to put it. But my conscience, kind of a haunting tune there. And I like that it's Sylvia Laramore and the Miller sisters. How do they know each other? How do they know each other? Where'd you find the Miller sisters? Are you? Are you? She's not a Miller. She's she's a Laramore. Maybe they're cousins. I don't know. Where do you find yourself some Miller sisters? Yeah, a, a couple great songs and. Uh, You know, I think if nothing else, everyone, truly everyone can agree right now that right now is a potent time. Everyone can agree that right now is potent. All time is potent, but rarely do we all agree. You know, rarely does everyone agree that right now is a potent potent time, and I feel that everyone is in... Universal agreement that right now is a potent time for all kinds of things. We don't all agree on what that potency should be applied to, or how we should apply ourselves to that potency, but we all seem to agree that right now is potent, and if you don't, you're just being stubborn and oppositionally defiant. Because let me tell you, right now is a time of great potency, and so you better put it to use. But trying to put it to use is similar to that whole trying to find your role thing. But I think if you have in your mind, if you have intention, if you have it in your mind that you don't want to waste this grand potency that's... That everyone is in agreement about. And and I mean realizing too that all time is potent. Especially knowing that your life is finite. Knowing that you won't live forever is a great reminder that all time is incredibly potent. It doesn't mean you won't have moments of impotence. But if you know that all time is potent, you're going to do more with it than you otherwise would. But it's similar to, you know, what to do with it. You know, what's your role? You don't really know what to do with your time if you don't know what your role is. And that's why certain classic roles are so essential. You know, somebody who is a parent or who has already just, you know, they found a career that actually does speak to them. Their intuition and they feel in harmony with a certain career. There are people who are in the medical field. There are people who are computer, the computer whizzes. They feel that that's their purpose. I don't know. I try to get away from that, though, because careers come and go. Industries come and go. And I think people are that's really hitting home right now where people who define themselves by their jobs can't define themselves by that right now. So what is your role? Well, then you have civil unrest. You have suicide in some cases. You have people who just don't know what to do. So they dip out. Some people, they come to the conclusion that I don't know what my role is. Maybe my role is to leave. Maybe my role is to just not be a part of this. My role is that of non-participant, and not just any non-participant, participant, but not even a witness. And I'm, I'm really fortunate I don't feel that way. I'm, I feel very fortunate that I don't feel that way. I feel fortunate that I don't feel that way. But uh, we're going to continue on with some more music here. And it's going to be a, by a guy named Lane Cassaro. Two songs by Lane Cassaro. Cassaro, Cassaro. You say Cassaro, I say Cassaro. I like Cassaro. Cassaro sounds like you just forgot to finish the word casserole, which is a word that's always grossed me out. Maybe, maybe because casseroles themselves gross me out, so I can't really make a distinction between the word and the object it's describing. Casseroles have always grossed me out, so I don't like the word casserole. Casserole. But I've actually played music by this guy before. He also went by the name Alan. He went by the names Alan Cassero and Lane Cassero. And Lane would be a really cool name for that era, I imagine. I mean, I've never known someone named Lane. And when you think about what a Lane is, that's a really cool name. Lane. You know, his name was Alan, and it's not too far off from Alan. You know, you can kind of see where someone named Alan might think, in order to make himself a little bit cooler, he might develop an alter ego. Lane. I'm Lane. How are you? My name's Lane. Lane. Or maybe Lane's his real name, and Allen was just his attempt to sound more normal. But Lane sounds like a 1950s, early 60s, American graffiti sort of name that you would give yourself in an attempt to seem cool when you're driving around, when you're hot rodding. Uh, but, uh, so we're going to play two songs by him here. The first one is Love Ended Long Ago. And despite the title, I find this song very sweet. Love Ended Long Ago followed by Big Blue Beautiful Sea, and that's BBBS, it's what we call a BBBS, a triple BS, a triple BS, uh, but a uh, Big Blue Beautiful Sea, and you know, it's got a little bit of that, I don't want to call it surfy, I wouldn't call it full-blown surf rock, but when you hear the guitar, you can kind of you can imagine that even if you didn't know that the song was called Big Blue Beautiful Sea, you almost expect the lyrics to start describing a body of water, an ocean, or something like that. So these two songs are by Lane Cassaro, also known as Alan Cassaro Love Ended Long Ago and Big Blue Beautiful Sea. <laughs>
1: saw her on the slide. I was so cruel. I even played you for a fool. But I'm sorry that it couldn't work out right. I guess you'll never just died I never told you so I'd never make you cry I was so cruel I even played you for a fool but I'm sorry that it couldn't work out right
0: Different those songs were, like how they were both by our friend Lane Allen. I imagine he was—he went by Allen his whole life, and then one day he told his friends, "It's Lane now. My name's Lane now. Okay, call me Lane." People would dead name him by calling him Allen. Nah, stupid joke. Um, but uh, we're gonna move on here to a fellow. Who was very, very influential. He's probably some of your favorite country artists, favorite country artists, depending on what era they got started. But Roy Acuff. Roy Acuff. A C U F F. And, you know, I'm pretty ignorant. When it comes to country music history and the lineages and the regional sounds and all of that. And every once in a while I'll talk to somebody who knows a lot about it. And I realize just how out of my league I am. But Roy Acuff is a guy who I became aware of. I'd heard his name before, but I became aware of him reading Charlie Leuven's book. They talk, or he he talks, although I feel like Ira is in that book too. In the same way that Charlie Leuven talked about visiting his brother Ira's grave and singing, and he felt like he, he could hear Ira harmonizing with him, he had sort of a supernatural experience. I mean, he, he really says he did, and I believe him, because I think the Leuven brothers... Accessed some sort of supernatural energy. And I mean that because I've had my own just strange experiences, even just listening to their music. And maybe that strange experience is just the fact that I like it. You know what I mean? Maybe that's enough of a strange experience is that these people are making this sound and I just like it. But in Charlie Leuven's book, he talks about how Roy Acuff was a big influence on them. And not just musically, because, you know, he was an early part of the grand old Opry. Roy Acuff was, but they talked about how he would drive around in, in in his fancy car for the for that era. I can't remember what kind of car it was. I'm not a car guy. I'm not a car guy. Okay, um, but uh, and they saw Roy Acuff drive by once, and they were just so impressed by his car. And you think about that—that that he was this very influential, and he was influential in the business too. You know, he was a behind-the-scenes guy as well as an important performer. But how just seeing his car drive by was, you know, speaking of supernatural moments, that was a magical moment for the Leuven brothers and actually influenced them. It made them want to, you know, hit the road and, and become, you know, musicians, make something of themselves. It gave them an idea of what their role should be. You know, really, it really did. That's kind of the way Charlie Leuven put it. Roy Acuff kind of gave them an idea, visual, for where they wanted to go. And I don't know a whole lot about him, but I bought this record on a whim. I bought this 45, and I'd never heard it online or anywhere else. And when I got it and put it on my record player, it just blew me away. I'd never heard somebody sound this way, and I still haven't. This song is just so unbelievable to me. His voice, it it is just so out there. And it's Roy Acuff and his Smoky Mountain Boys. Not the Smoky Mountain Boys, but his. These aren't just any Smoky Mountain Boys, but Roy Acuff's, they belong to him. They're his. That's in the name. His Smoky Mountain Boys. And the song is called Searching for Happiness. And it really, oh man, it just, it is so raw and so beautiful. And his voice is so strained but powerful I just feel you can just feel his vocal cords stretching and I don't need to I just need to play it for you so you can hear it for yourself. It's just something really unique and, and special and at some point I'm gonna really need to do a Roy Acuff dive and just go through his work. Cause if there's other stuff like this or if it's different and just knowing what an influence he was on the Leuven brothers, you know, one of my favorite groups and the influence he was on the industry as a whole while being this raw. That is something special. And Searching for Happiness, too. I feel like this song really sounds like the title. It really sounds like the idea behind it. It sounds like a search for happiness.
1: I've been blue all day Thinking sometimes I'd run away yes searching for happiness when you're alone or have happy- for happiness (laughs)
2: See? That's the game we're playing. We can make all kinds of complexities out of that and really, in a way, have enormous fun. (laughs) But once anybody sees through that, well, we're frightened. Once you get this sense of polarity of your inside, being the same process as your outside and your ego being one and the same process as the whole universe going on then we are afraid that people may say well good equals bad and we can do anything we like and we didn't in any way be further subject to the ordinary rules of human conduct and uh, we can wear what clothes we like or no clothes at all we can have what sexual life we like we can do anything, and uh, we are going to generally, because the world is being rather oppressive towards us, challenge the whole thing and run amok, and a lot of people are doing just exactly that.
0: Running amok. Some people do that during very potent times. Sometimes that's someone's, what do you do with all this potency? Run amuck. We
2: run amok.
0: You never hear that word used in any other context. You only ever hear run amok. It's always preceded by run. Walking amok. Stupid joke, but also a cool idea. Sometimes a stupid joke is also a cool idea. Walking amok. Somebody's probably named their album that. Like some bar rock band is probably called Walking amok, or they've named their album that, Their, their CD but um, we're going to kind of riff on the same note. And, you know, by the way, I mean, you just heard that Roy Acuff song, and it's just mind-blowing. If ever somebody deserved to sing a song, who, if if anybody ever just their for their voice alone deserved to sing a song called Searching for Happiness, that was it. That was the man to do it, and he did it. You can just imagine my reaction when I put that 45 on the record player, and it was just, whoa. But yeah, we're going to continue on a a similar theme here. We're going to play a couple songs, and I like that song, Searching for Happiness, because it's a goal. You're looking for happiness, you know, and and that's been a, a hot topic on this show for years now, is just, you know, aiming for neutrality, equanimity because that makes happiness more accessible. You don't want to go from misery to happiness either, because you're more likely to drop back down. You don't want to take that sharp fall. If you build up, if you climb up to equanimity, to neutrality, and then get to happiness, if you fall back down, you fall back down to equanimity, to neutrality, and that's not a hard fall, and actually it's kind of pleasant to be back in neutrality. It's kind of pleasant to be back there. Searching for neutrality. Searching for neutrality, equanimity. and uh, But these two songs aren't about happiness, but they're about misery. And they're not just about that. They have that in the title. The first song is by Jackie Lee, and it's, so, it's called Simply Misery. And it's not the same as the Del Shannon song, Misery, that he's known for. But it's a unique one. I don't think I've ever heard anything that sounds exactly like this. Jackie Lee, and also unique is that he spells his name J-A-C-K-Y. Typically, Jackie is an I-E name. So, uh, why he spelled it with a Y, I don't know. O-Y. But Jackie Lee, Misery. And the opening notes to this song, I recognize them from somewhere. It's almost like that Bathory song where he plays like Pop Goes the Weasel just in the first few seconds of the song or, or something like Pop Goes the Weasel for whatever reason. It's something like that. It makes me think of that. But then once it goes into the actual song, it doesn't have that melody. At least I don't think so. My Memory of Misery. But it opens with the, these notes and then it goes into the song and it's different. But if you know what that is, let me know. Let me know if you know what those opening notes are. Not that I actually want to know. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. But uh, Jackie Lee, Misery, and that's going to be followed with Billy Hill, Losing My Misery. So we're going to start with Misery, and then we're going to go to Losing My Misery, which if if you're talking about a search for happiness, Roy Acuff's Searching for Happiness, a great way to get to happiness is to lose your misery first. And that's actually sort of the climb to equanimity, the climb to neutrality. You focus on getting rid of the misery rather than trying to jump from misery to happiness. It's more manageable to just lose your misery. You know what you need to do? You need to lose your misery if you're going to talk to me. But uh, the names by these artists, too, I feel like they go together well. You know, in addition to them both using wise. You know, Billy and Jackie are both spelled with a Y at the end. Their last names, Lee and Hill, you know, one-syllable names, they just go together well. It's almost like it was all planned this way, but misery and losing my misery. If there's a plan in your life, I think a good plan is to start from misery and then lose your misery, rather than putting misery second. You never want to gain misery, because that's not much of a gain. So here we're going to start with misery, and then we're going to lose misery.
1: misery, For
2: me, misery. because this is a description of anxiety anxiety is the fear that one of a pair of opposites might cancel the other forever and if by any chance by any means you find out that that is not so You have an entirely new attitude to what human beings are doing. Which may be very creative, but which also may be very dangerous. You see through the game, the game called White Must Win, because you know that neither black nor white are going to win, because they belong to each other.
0: the actual lyric is, I'm going to lose part of this misery. You know, I was talking about how just the idea of losing your misery is a much more manageable goal than trying to say, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be happy. So just trying to lose your misery is a manageable enough goal on its own, but then saying, I'm going to lose part of this misery. It's even more manageable. And there's also something very profound and wise in that. In the, It's kind of accepting that there will be an inevitable amount of misery in my life that I can't get rid of. So if I can just get rid of part of it and accept that there's still going to be some misery, well, there's some relief in that, and that relief alleviates even more misery. So interesting. And I also, of course, love the lyric, I'm going to lose part of this misery if it kills me. I'm gonna lose his misery if it kills me you know it's a good idea though it's like uh if you're gonna die if there's some way that you're gonna die you know it'd be great on your tombstone if it said he died losing his misery <laughs> this man died it's like the oregon trail when you played oregon trail as a kid uh in school did anybody have oregon trail not to be some like hey you remember school in the 90s Not to be one of those guys, but still, like, did anybody actually have that game at home? Seems like one of those games you only played at school, but you'd come across other people's tombstones and it would say, here lies so-and-so died of dysentery. But it's like, died losing his misery. That's awesome. I would like to die losing my misery. Um, but, uh, the other lyric too, that I like is I'm going to move to the other side of town. Cause that's something we try to do so often. We try to physically move ourselves and the quote, wherever you go, there you are, comes to mind. It's a, it's a commonly repeated quote. Wherever you go, th- wherever you go, there you are. But it's such a true quote because people try to escape. You know, it's, it's a very common thing when someone lives in a town or city and they're sick of their friends or they, they, they were in a breakup. That's How often is a breakup somebody's you know, source of misery, some sort of romantic failure or a struggle to meet the right person? And so often people blame where they are. And I, I live in the town of Olympia, and it has, it certainly has its ups and it definitely has its downs. Certainly has its ups and it definitely has its downs. But uh, it's this is a town that it's it's very insular and small. And if I had uh, if I had a dime for every time someone was like, "I hate Olympia, I'm gonna leave," and then they leave, and then they find that oh, guess what? Wherever you go, there you are, and you took your misery with you, and now that person wants to come back here. You know, it's it's just such a common phenomenon. I'm sure it happens in all kinds of cities and towns, but it's very common in this particular one. But that's such a, a common idea. I'm going to move to the to the other side of town and things are going to be different. Oh, well, guess what? You brought your misery with you. Turns out that thing, that that shadow, you bring it with you wherever you go. Turns out. So that song, it's very deceptively profound is how I describe that song. Billy Hill, Losing My Misery. And speaking of deceptively profound, maybe it's not so deceptive, but we're going to play a big hit here by Gene Pitney, and just one of the most beautiful voices. I think my only complaint, and why complain, but just my only, the reason I don't listen to Gene Pitney more often is that his music often has a lot of sweetener in it, which is, you know, the sort of uh, orchestral or or backing. You know, the more popular music from the 60s tends to have that, where it has this orchestral backing, and it can be cool, but it's a bit heavy-handed, and it's usually, the production is a little bit much for me, but that said, I mean, Gene Pitney's voice is just so beautiful, it's up there with Orbison, other names as well, but I would just, I would put him up there with Orbison, and names like that Where just his range, and there's just such a, an angelic beauty, an otherworldly beauty to his voice, and this is one of his big songs, Only Love Can Break a Heart, but it goes back to that, you know, quote, that Alan Watts quote about You know, black and white, neither one can win because they depend on each other. I mean, it's not exactly what he said, but that idea that they're fixed. Black and white are in a fixed relationship. And this idea that white can beat black. And of course, you can't even say those words right now at all without people thinking that it's some sort of racial reference. And how weird is that? Just real quick. How weird is it that, you know, we have we refer to white and black people and neither of these people are actually white or black. That shows you that we are just insane as a species. If you ever needed pr- proof that we are freaking insane, it's that we are obsessed and we we refer to people using these extreme shades that we don't even have. You know, I mean the the northernmost european skin isn't pure white. Maybe there's an albino who you could say, but that's an exception. And then, you know, even the, in the darkest parts of Africa, you know, uh, nobody's skin is truly black, even though some people's skin gets very dark, but yet we're just like black and white. We just throw those around. Enough about that, though. Nobody wants to hear about that. Actually, that's not true. Everybody, <laughs> everybody right now is just, that's all they are talking about, of course. Um, but uh, but just to get back to my point is that only love can break a heart. That's a very profound idea, and it does fit into that idea that, you know, you can't, you know, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's this fixed relationship. You know, you can't have a broken heart without love, so it's just this idea that these things depend on each other in a way. You know, these things don't exist in a vacuum. They are dependent mutually dependent in the same way that black and white depend on each other and so gene pitney here a big hit this is a big hit but i think it's important to play big hits on this show sometimes i don't want to just scrape the bottom of the ocean all the time you know i don't i don't want to just pull from the the murkiest, muddiest depths of the ocean when it comes to the sort of material I play on this show. I think it's important sometimes to, you know, to put these famous angels on a pedestal, too. And that's why Roy Orbison, Elvis, Dolly Parton, Gene Pitney here. It's important for these people to get their time, too, because the archangels are as important as anybody else is. (laughs) As if that needed to be said, you know. But Gene Pitney, the archangel Gene Pitney with only love can break a heart.
1: Darling
0: Another well known artist here, not quite an archangel, not quite the archangel Gene Pitney, but somebody who was famous in that era for sure. And that's Sonny James. And is that his last name? Or are those, is Sonny sort of a prefix for his first name? Like I would be Sonny Eric. Now his last name is James. I don't know if it's his real last name. I haven't really I don't know his full story, but uh he had a, a big hit in the late nineteen fifties, Young Love, which will probably be familiar to anybody who's a fan of that era. And I'm gonna play that. It's gonna be the last song in this Sonny James block. But I'm gonna start out with just a this song isn't deceptively profound. I don't even have words for this first song. It's called On the Fingers of One Hand. On the Fingers of One Hand. I don't know what inspired this. It's a spiritual song, that's clear. But not typically... It's not gospel, although maybe it would have qualified. Because it certainly gets holy in its own way. But I don't know where the whole... You'll hear what the lyrics are. You'll hear it here in a second, but just... I don't understand what influenced this, but I certainly understand the idea and the message. It resonates with me in some strange way. On the fingers of one hand. And it's a life and death song. And if I only knew Young Love and some of his other well-known stuff, I, I wouldn't even think this was the same artist necessarily, but it is. It's Sonny James. And this is going to be a quite a varied little block here. This Sonny James block. So on the fingers of one hand is going to start it out. And then, hey, little ducky. And I guess I should warn you. I almost want you to just be shocked, but I think I'm going to warn you that uh, it's got a Donald Duck thing going on. Like There's something where men in that era, and I don't know if it's Sonny himself doing it, but men from that era we're able to do a really good Donald Duck impression. There's not a single person my age who can do a Donald Duck impersonation. I had a friend's dad who could do it perfectly. His name was Bruce. And uh, one time he was picking us up from football practice, and just out of nowhere he busted out this perfect Donald Duck impression. And it's hard to do that with your voice. You know, I like to do things to my voice. I could never do a Donald Duck impression. I'd die trying. It'd be sorta of like Billy Hill losing his misery. I'm gonna lose part of this misery if it kills me. I'm gonna do a Donald Duck voice if it kills me. Cause I love Duckburg. I'm for whatever reason, Donald I've had a, just a lifelong love for Donald Duck and there's no irony to it. I just love Scrooge, I love DuckTales, I love the old comics. Um, both the originals and then, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, but this guy who was a really big fan of the original Scrooge comics, redid them. And they're not as visually cool as the original comics, but they're still cool, and the guy was such a fan. It's always cool when someone's a diehard fan who does something just for the sheer love of it. So I have some of those collections of the the remakes of the original scrooge comics and they're always adventurous they get deep into that exotica territory where it's like exploring the incan ruins there's even one where it's the i'm totally blanking on the name but the the finnish mythological story it's very well known it involves that strange object that nobody really knows what it is but there's even a scrooge comic where they do they recreate that finnish mythological story um but uh hey little ducky, I am just warning you, it has a loud Donald Duck voice. And the guy's trying to get this ducky, little ducky, to help him get the girl. And if only I could get a duck to help me do that. No. I'm an asexual monk who's turning into an alien day by day. <laughs> I don't I don't need a duck to help me get any girls. I just I'm I want the duck. I'm not after the girl. I'm after the duck. But uh, so we go from this really interesting holy song on the fingers of one hand in this block to Hey Little Ducky, this very goofy sort of romantic song to just a big hit, Young Love, just a classic late mid to late 1950s teener ballad. Even though Sonny James was kind of old, even for that era, I think he was already well into his 30s when he did Young Love. But who's going to tell you about young love except somebody who's already been through it? Except for somebody who's recruited a duck to help them find a girl. To somebody who's been able to count their life on the fingers of one hand.
4: On the fingers of one hand, on the fingers of one hand. Life can all be counted on the fingers of one hand Count your little finger on the day you're born See the fingernail, it's protection from the thorn Protection from the thorn of life, it shields you as you grow. The nail is a guardian until you're a child no more. On the fingers of one hand, on the fingers of one hand, life can all be counted on the fingers of your second finger as you come of age. Right and wrong is clearer when you reach this stage. And when you meet the girl you love according to life's plan, the day you wed you count the middle finger of your hand. one hand on the fingers of one hand. Life can all be counted on the fingers of one hand. When the Lord has blessed you with the tiny air, count a final finger and say, a Prayer. Last of all, you count the upon the day your life is done. From birth to death is not in vain. You live on oh, through your son, on the fingers of one hand, on the fingers of one.
2: is dramatic if the world as the Hindus say is a big act put on by the divine self. One of the rules of coming on stage is that you don't come on as yourself, you come on as the part that you're going to play. It's very bad form if an actor always acts the same way. That's what's called a star as distinct from an actor. (laughs) A real actor can become anything. and so. But in private life, well, he's just Mr. Jones. And, but he doesn't come on the stage that way. So in the same way, if you know that behind the scenes, in the depths, fundamentally, you are it, you don't come on that way. It always comes on as something else. That's the rule of the stage. Because without that, there wouldn't be a play. There would only be reality. No illusion. And the whole point of life is illusion.
3: Oh, my, i my
4: Hey, little ducky.
1: Rock hey,
4: have you seen that little girl of mine? Mmm, she only left me yesterday. Now I fear that she has run away. Hey little ducky. Do you know what she looks like?
1: No, I
4: well, she has blonde hair and blue eyes That shine just like the stars up in the sky Oh, God We had been going steady Up till now And little Ducky yes. What happens now? I,
1: don't know.
4: I need her loving And kisses too Oh, Ducky, please find her Oh please do hey little ducky. Yeah. Do you think you can find her for me? Oh Mmm, she means a whole wide world to me, as anyone can very plainly see.
1: Oh,
4: Hey little ducky Thanks for finding that little girl
3: of
4: mine mm-hmm. i promise you one thing today
1: She will never ever go
4: They say forever boy and boy, boy, girl they're just one love in this whole world and I know I found mine The heavenly touch of your embrace tells me no one could take your place and hey, 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 hey. Your love is real And I can feel That it's true We will bow to one another There will never be another love
0: hit upon the full spectrum there with Sonny James from life to death to duck and you know Batty he's been on my lap for the last 10-20 minutes and he did not I wouldn't say he didn't like the duck voice but it's the only time I've seen him twitch out of all the music I've played today as he's been sitting in this room here and we're coming to a close here Coming to a close of another Every Night's a School night. I feel an extra sense of accomplishment every time I do one of these. I don't know why. It just feels good. It just feels good to do Every Night's a School night. To still do it since 2013. Uh, whatever this show is. Whoever's listening. Whoever's making this show. Who's making this show anyway? Uh, but uh, we're going to close out with a song, that is a very powerful song, uh, Chuck Kniss and the Impacts. And if you think that's Impact with a T in there, it's not. The record label that released this was called Impact, I-M-P-A-C, and so the group is named after the record label, the Impacts but Chuck Kannis K A N I S S I've never seen that last name anywhere else Sometimes you just you'll see a last name and you're just like I've never seen that anywhere else and I don't think I ever will it Makes me think of Kansas which is funny cuz he's from Kansas I decided to look him up A lot of times I stay blissfully ignorant of who the who these artists actually are but sometimes I'll look up these guys who and just to see who they were and sometimes all you'll find is an obituary, and you can clearly see that it was them. But they there may or may not be a reference to their short-lived music career. But this guy actually did have a career: Chuck Kniss and the Impacts. And uh, but his obituary showed that he he was a registered nurse from Kansas, and he had been in a band with Kenny Rogers, the famous Kenny Rogers. The New Christie Minstrels. And in that group, though, he performed under the name Mark Holly, Mark Holly, But his real name was Chuck Kniss, as evidenced by his obituary. And uh, just interesting, though, he was in a group. I believe he played guitar or bass in The New Christy Minstrels with Kenny Rogers. But a registered nurse from Kansas. Interesting uh, that he also had this beautiful voice and he played this song, which has just been, uh, this song has been, I've been meaning to actually play this song probably since 2013. It's been one that I've had in the hopper, in the hopper, since probably 2013, Chuck Kniss and the Impacts with Forever and a Day. And I love that phrase. I love the phrase forever and a day. And you know what it makes me think of? You know, because I've discussed the Ouroboros on here before. I I discussed it just a day or two ago, I think, on here. But my friend Miles, he had asked me to draw him a tattoo of an Ouroboros with its tail breaking out the back of its head or its skull. I still haven't done it because I just don't feel like I've had it in me to draw it as well as I want to draw such an amazing idea. And if you steal it, we'll hunt you down. I'm hesitant to mention it. I've mentioned it on this show before, so that's why I'm mentioning it now. But if you steal that idea, Miles and I will hunt you. Because I'm drawing that for him, and it's his idea. But but, uh, warnings aside, (laughs) my role is to support people's ideas and their sense of... uh, I went on this long rant in the beginning, and then by the end of the episode, like, early on, the beginning of this episode, I'm like, I just feel so connected to everybody, whether I agree or disagree with them. And then by the end of the episode, I'm like, I will hunt you down. But really, this Ouroboros with the tail sticking out of its head, what that makes me think of is forever and a day. Because the Ouroboros is the snake forming a circle by swallowing its own tail. So that's forever. That's infinity. What the Ouroboros represents, on the most basic level, is infinity and just the eternal cycle, forever. That is, the Ouroboros represents forever. So what would be representative of forever and a day? What's what's beyond forever? Well, it's the Ouroboros with its tail breaking out the back of its skull. And the tip of that tail breaking out the back of the Ouroboros' skull is that day. The forever is the whole, the, the circle, and the, the tip of the tail breaking out the back of the skull. That's that extra day. And that's what Chuck Kniss and the Impacts are singing about here with forever and a day. I mean, they're singing about love, but when I'm talking about Ouroboros', that's love too. An infinite resource. You know, if if the Ouroboros represents an infinite resource, eternity, forever, that's love, too, because love is that infinite resource as well that keeps things going. But forever and a day. Registered nurse Chuck Kniss, he's no longer with us. But, you know, may he live forever and a day, because this song captures that. The song transcends not just the circular nature of time, but it actually breaks through it. It's that tip of the tail breaking through the skull of Ouroboros, taking forever one more step beyond. Because that's possible, too. <laughs> ¶¶
2: I've been on a heroic journey, and tell all sorts of tales, and they say, prove it. Because they expect him to bring back something, something which nobody has seen before. Then they believe, you've been on the journey. So in the same way, exactly, anybody who goes on a spiritual journey must bring something back. Because if you just say, oh man, it was a gas, <laughs> anyone can say that.
5: When you are by my side, with the help of God, I know I can be strong. God, I know I can be strong to make this land our home. If I must find light to make this land our own, until